Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, it's both my mother's birthday and my aunt's birthday. So I thought, the hell with it. Let's do a story on Germany. So make sure that you send lots of love and happy birthday wishes to them both. No dates, though. We don't believe in years. That's right. Until we tell you otherwise, we're 25. All right. With that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, as always, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say roundhouse? Wait, roadhouse? Roundhouse. No, roundhouse. That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say Germany, that will be a double shot. All right, now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, don some super tight lederhosen, or maybe a dirndl, depending on your preference, and throw on your best alpine hat as we dive into the mysteries of Nazi Germany's Roundhouse. Did a German secret society resort to human sacrifice to stem the tide of the First World War in Germany's favor? 
was the builder of a house that became known as the Roundhouse a member of said order? And were human remains found? And was there a geoglyph in the shape of the supreme god of Nordic mythology carefully hidden in the landscape around this enigmatic edifice? Does the landscape itself offer more clues pointing to a carefully constructed occult geography? Was all of this known in certain circles? And was that the reason that the house was destroyed in 1967? Well, these questions and many, many others haunt a rural village in the Netherlands. The mystery has been known for some time by a select group of journalists and writers who were in possession of the same fragmentary source. The situation changed with the publication of a book that, well, unfortunately, has left more questions than answers. Entitled, De Chosen This Van Het Roundhaus Mysteries Ontrefeld, which means the history of the roundhouse mysteries unraveled. The book is the result of a study by an anonymous working group consisting of seven people. 65-year-old former bank employee Hans Schockwick is one of them. He is listed as the unofficial author of the book and acts as a spokesperson for this group because he became interested in this mystery over 40 years ago. In the book, the group claims it has spent a considerable amount of time, decades in fact, investigating the mystery of the roundhouse. It has built up a comprehensive archive on the case that they claim, yet the book is unreferenced and much of the testimony in the book is by anonymous sources. Since the claims are so wild and there is no documentary evidence, the book has only led to more controversy with fierce opponents on both sides. After a short flurry of minor interest, the national media has dropped the case altogether. But let us examine this strange story of the mystery of the roundhouse in its entirety. A local hermit by the name of Johann Montenberg begins to tell a strange story to Schockwick, who he meets in 1972. Montenberg is a very distrustful man, and he doesn't necessarily tell the story in one sitting, but rather by bits and pieces. But he hints here and there, and through rambling letters to various people over a longer period of time. What he hints at is hair-raising and absolutely unbelievable. His tale unfolds of secret rituals, a German occult order, and the abduction of young girls for human sacrifice. Mention is made of subterranean passages and a lime pit where the bodies of the hapless victims are disposed of. It is stated that human remains were found in 1916, and the corpse of a young girl was found in 1917, and there is a police investigation that happened sometime around 1924, which was said to be halted on the orders of superiors. And all of this is said to have occurred before, during, and after the First World War, in which the Netherlands actually had a neutral status. 
On these points, Shockwick is adamant. There is no system of underground passageways, and I found absolutely no evidence. End quote. These were his words that were printed in a Dutch newspaper, but yet he remains convinced that around the time of the First World War, a pagan Germanic order existed that practiced occult warfare. Truth is that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Europe was literally riddled with secret societies and occult orders. And, well, Germany was just no exception. Ariosophy, Theosophy, Anthroposophy, and countless of others' lesser-known sects, cults, and orders just littered the streets. There was, for instance, the OTO, which is the Ordo Templi Orientis, that came into existence between 1895 and 1904. Others were the German Norden, founded in 1912 in Berlin and usurped the swastika as its symbol. From it sprang forth the Thule Gelskraft, formally founded in 1918. There were many more virulent anti-Semitic and Volkish orders, and political murders, especially after the defeat of Germany in the First World War, well, were commonplace. But no actual evidence has ever come to light of instances of human sacrifice in these German-Austrian occult circles, which makes the claims surrounding the Roundhouse especially hard to believe. But at the center of this dark mystery stands a wealthy Dutchman by the name of Frank von Vloten, and he lived from 1858 to 1930. And he had an eccentric reputation. Some stories claimed that he always dressed in black, rode a black horse, and was known as the Black Devil. I just want to know, did he sing Paint It Black? No, just kidding. In 1906, Van Vloten begins the construction of a curious building. It is a circular-shaped stone house of three stories with a flat roof on his very large estate near Nunspit, a very little Dutch town in a wooded area called the Veluwe. A private pony tram on the Dacoville track delivers guests from the local train station to the building that quickly acquires the name the Roundhouse. Strange rumors begin to swirl around it, although it's hard to say when this actually started. It is said that a woman, dressed entirely in black, now and then visits the house. And on certain occasions, it is claimed that she brings a number of young girls, veiled and also dressed in black, with the private horse carriage. The children arrive but are never seen leaving. And it is said that some of the laborers who work for Van Vlotten know what happens with these girls, but keep their mouths tightly shut out of fear of reprisal. When these rumors begin to emerge in the local Nunspit newspaper in 1976, they are rebuffed and delegated to the realms of fantasy by others who visited the roundhouse in their childhood. It is later claimed that the reporter who wrote the 1976 story immigrated to Canada because of serious threats made to his life. I'm not buying that. Not in the Netherlands, anyways. The book also cites an anonymous handwritten account in a notebook. It is said to have been written by a man who hunted regularly during the First World War in the woods around the roundhouse. 
And read aloud, it states in detail what happened. And I quote, had a conversation with H in regards to the rumors about the roundhouse. He finally confirmed that German rituals took place on the grounds of the roundhouse, first in the house and then outside, always at full moon. The girls, usually a number of about six, were given a drug to drink and were thus put in a state of hypnosis. At one of the small ponds, a sacrificial stone was placed on a pedestal. Next to it, an inclination in the ground, a fire burned. The priest with a hood with two holes for the eyes killed the girl with a sword. It's not known who this man is. The group went back to the roundhouse and the priest stayed behind and disposed of the body. End quote. Other accounts surface over the years, such as this one by a now-deceased local artist-painter, and I quote, We were so poor that I used to hunt a rabbit in the woods. One night I was at it again. At the pond I heard voices and saw a light gleaming. I hid behind a tree to have a look. At the bank of the pond there were a number of girls with oil lamps. They were standing in a half circle facing the pond. 12 to 15 girls, probably about 20 years old. In front of them was a woman facing them, a sturdy woman of about 40 years. The girls wore white blouses and dark skirts, possibly red in color. On their heads, they wore some kind of hood. In fact, more a band around the head with on their foreheads something glistening. Around their waists, something that looked like a little apron or bag. The older woman wore a long, dark dress, possibly red in color as well. Something glistening was hanging on her chest. I think a chain or something. All the girls and the woman put up their right hand with two fingers in the air. It seemed like an oath was being taken. The older woman said something, after which the girls repeated it. Afterwards, the woman threw something over her shoulder in the pond, perhaps a stone or a coin. Then the girls began to sing softly. During the singing, a number of men approached the girls. They, may, they must have been standing farther away in the dark, because I became frightened and I left immediately. End quote. So, how much of these strange tales should we believe? Shalkwick was asked if he or the group he represents had any documentary verifiable evidence for the existence of that German occult order. His reply was that he had three oral sources, but no documentary evidence. But the story gets even stranger from here. They claim that there is, or rather was, evidence as to the occult nature of Van Vlotten and his order. It's not found in archives, but in the landscape around the roundhouse. Around the 1900s, the exact date or year is shrouded in uncertainty, of course. Wealthy estate owner Frank Van Vlotten suddenly starts with a series of extensive landscape and garden projects on his estate. The laborers who work for him just don't understand why, as almost everything they are ordered to do to, makes no sense from an agricultural point of view. On the surface, there seems to be no logical plan behind the work, but there was work, and therefore food on the table, is the consensus among the laborers. 
The working group investigating the mysteries that swirl around the house is set on the trail of looking at the landscape surrounding the roundhouse instead of delving through what archives remain by a chance discovery. They find what they see as a clue in the files of a former SS-affiliated archaeologist. Before World War II, the archaeologists had done some excavation work at Misty. This is a spot in the vicinity of the Roundhouse, and since long rumored to have been an ancient Germanic place of worship. This former SS-affiliated archaeologist, Franz Christian Bursch, 1903-1981, has, well, quite the checkered past, to say the very least. During the Second World War, from 1940 to 1945, Bursch became a member of the NSB, a Dutch pro-Nazi organization. 1943 finds him in the Ukraine involved in excavations with the use of slave labor. Notwithstanding his NSB membership and his affiliation to Heinrich Heimler's Occult Research Institute Anhernerbe, he escapes any consequences after the end of the war in 1945. And until his death in 1981, he's a teacher in classical languages. Bursch, as might be expected from someone who served the Dark Overlord, saw ancient German ruins and remains, well, everywhere he looked. In how far Bursch was looking on a theory involving a giant pictogram and a geoglyph in the vicinity of the Mississippi, well, it's hard to say. And his remaining archive offers no further clues, and his post-war book doesn't make any mention of it. Misty, another source points out, is a place of absolute pure evil. He recounts vague rumors that ghosts and other strange creatures were frequently seen here. Dark and bloody rituals said to have been conducted at the Mitzi, and for a long time, there were those that claimed that the famous Varus battle took place there, and not somewhere in Germany. Wild German hordes whipped into frenzy by their druids sacrificed the vanquished Romans on the earthen walls of Misty. This was the cause that the pan-Germic movement had a more than usual interest in that particular spot, as it was also placed on a hillage linge, the German equivalent of a ley line. This line allegedly was restored in 1891 by the Alduce Verren. That was the motive for the construction of the roundhouse and its inhabitant, Frank Van Vlotten, was placed there under orders of the Pan-Germanic movement. Modern archaeology, though, has established that Misty is a curious but absolutely natural formation. What the working group finds in the files of the deceased archaeologists on Missy is a depiction of the giant of Cern Abbas. Wondering about the presence of this seemingly unrelated image in that file, the question arises. Would it be possible that the landscape surrounding the roundhouse might have hidden a similar figure? In the light of this theory, the extensive work done on the estate begins to make a little sense. The landscaping, the planting or removing or relocation of bushes, the digging of certain ditches and paths, and the creation of artificial hills all serve to create, in deepest secret, a giant figure of Wodan, only to be seen from the sky with the roundhouse at its center, for that is Wodan's remaining eye. 
And for those of you that aren't mythological buffs, Wodan is known as Odin in Norway. Alright, so Shalkwick, the spokesman for this anonymous group investigating this mysterious house, claims that he and his group investigating the surrounding area with the use of soil investigations, measuring equipment, and, quote, other sources. They arrive at the conclusion that the roundhouse and the estate were constructed according to German rites. Seen from above, the giant image of the Nordic god Wodan would be visible. The roundhouse is his one remaining eye. Schalkwick even manages to reconstruct a helmet and a spear in the landscape. In a bush, he recognizes a beard and mustache, and they further claim to have found at the south a ditch in the form of a phallus with a vulva nearby at walking distance. Because, you know, when you have a phallus, you need a vulva close by. And he quotes, and I'm sorry, he states, and I quote, We got the most insane orders replacing hills, dig away soil, and construct rice fields. We never saw rice, the laborers said. These statements strengthen Shockwick and his group in their convictions. From other quarters, too, it is murmured that the place has a reputation for weirdness. Some visitors will later claim that they felt haunted by a strange, oppressive atmosphere when visiting the by-now-wooded areas. Other tales recount how many times in the past, but also in the present, little people were seen who allegedly had an abode in the vicinity of the Mitzti. But that's not everything. Of course not, because I never leave you twisting. A wealthy family buys an estate adjacent to the roundhouse and the Misty in the 1930s. Some of its members behave very curiously, and subsequently more rumors start that a Germanic Celtic cult is practicing its rituals at the roundhouse. When National Socialism emerges, eugenic experiments were conducted there as well, don't you know? Mention is made of unholy orgies with certain very high-placed German-friendly Dutch people. There's even mention of the ghostly appearances of four or five girls. They can be seen wandering over the nearby path, sometimes at night, with their arms tightly clutched. The problem, though, is that the existence of a huge geoglyph in the form of Wodan remains unproven. On the aerial photos that have been studied by enthusiasts and researchers of the myth, well, there's nothing there. Also, but a few traces remain of the original landscape projects of Frank Van Vlotten. So, are Shockwick and his group of fellow researchers deluded, and do they simply want to see things that just aren't there at all? What certainly doesn't give one confidence is that almost anything in the book on the case is, well, unsourced. We don't know who spoke to who, when, or how. But these strange stories, they still remain. In regards to these weird tales about little men and unholy rites by the Germanic Celtic cult, these, these stem from a very odd source as well. They appear in some curious leaves with intricate drawings done by an elderly and now deceased man by the name of Eldermans. Not much is known about him, what remained of his archive when Eldermans destroyed most of it towards the end of his life is for the most part found in a museum for witchcraft. Eldermans himself is described by his late son-in-law with simply one word, witch. 
Perhaps a closer examination of the purported shadowy group responsible for the occult activity during World War I might shed some much-needed light on the matter. It is perhaps here, in the various allegations of occult orders working on behalf of Imperial Germany, that we may be able to shed some light on this matter. The First World War was the first major conflict that saw all the civilized nations of the world at each other's throats. And, well, it hasn't stopped from there, has it? It represented unimaginable horror in so many different ways. A war that many thought would be over by Christmas dragged on for four grinding years. The millions of men, so eager and happy to march into the cauldron of death, would lose their lives, lurking in the trenches filled with putrid water. Pummeled senseless by giant artillery attacks that lasted hours on end, mowed down by the newly perfected machine guns, set alight by flamethrowers, or ending up as twisted, broken corpses caught in the barbed wire obstacles littering the nightmare landscape that was the front. There were even rumors of bands of soldiers who either had lost their minds or had simply deserted, clung together in groups turned ferociously cannibal on the prowl for warm flesh in the labyrinthine trenches of no man's land. There were strange occurrences, too, growing into legend over time. There were the famous Angels of Mons, or encounters with a radiant white entity, always there in the hour of need, called the Comrade in White. There was the story of the terrible Hound of Mons, outfitted with a human brain by a mad German scientist. The First World War was so peppered with strange events that a number of books were solely devoted to these anomalies. And just one year after the war in 1919, the book Légers, Prophétés et Supersessions de la Grande Guerre, yeah, say that five times fast. Legends, Prophecies, and Superstitions of the Great War by French linguist Albert Duzot saw print. Amongst others, the book lists a sighting of an aerial object that today we would classify as a UFO. And I quote, In the first days of November 1918, at the moment when President Wilson and the German government were holding preliminary discussions concerning a ceasefire, the tale ran across the American front that a white dove of peace had on a clear day circled the lines for more than an hour. It was an airplane, according to the testimony of a colonel and two majors. They even recalled certain less truthful details which proved that they too were the victims of a mild form of suggestion. It was, they said, a completely white airplane of a type unknown on the Western Front, not carrying any insignia of any kind and flying very high. It passed over the American trenches, then circled the German lines, and it did so for over an hour, then turned north and disappeared. End quote. Sometimes the stories of these events that traveled through the trenches, as they were whispered from soldier to soldier, were the source of brief comfort and solace. Since, if not blinded or worse by poison gas, killed by snipers or gnawed upon by rats as large as little dogs, soldiers were routinely executed, branded as cowards. Shell shock, after all, was still unrecognized as the true psychomedical cause for the inertia in following up orders. 
Orders that many times were as senseless as the conflict that was, in fact, an ordinary family brawl between the royal houses. After all, the German Kaiser was a nephew of the British Queen, and both were family of the Russian Tsar. But the ultimate tragedy was that technology had a much faster pace than the willingness and ability of the old generals to comprehend the effects and the need for change in their ancient strategies and battlefield tactics. This was a new type of war. The First World War saw the advent of the airplane and the tank as formidable weapons of war. But each day thousands of soldiers were hurtled against the devastating fire of the machine gun, the minefield, and the flamethrower, dying totally unnecessary deaths, often for but a few feet of gain in terrain that strategically meant nothing but undoubtedly helped some general from losing face. No wonder, then, that when the war became a stalemate, a war of attrition, some of Germany's generals resorted to less conventional means to try and win the war, or at least gain some insight in the unfolding tragedy that ultimately left 60 million people dead. It would even be claimed after the war that the Angels of Mons were in fact a German psyop, but one so novel and unusual that it had backfired on its own troops. And one of these German generals, Helmuth von Moltke, his spiritual needs gained Rudolf Steiner, the founder of the anthroposophical movement, a listening ear. Steiner corresponded with Moltke while he was alive, but also after Moltke was dead. Steiner, a recent study clarifies, embraced Moltke as a latent spiritualist and one of his followers, potentially an important anthroposophist. Both Moltke and his wife Eliza studied Steiner's works, which they found compelling. In a letter to his wife, Moltke wrote that Steiner's teachings struck a chord in him. Quote, no other philosophizing author has so far been more comprehensible to me than he. End quote. Steiner returned von Moltke's high regard, finding in him the reincarnated Pope Nicholas I. When Moltke was appointed chief of staff, the chief of the military cabinet was ready to resign, stating that, and I quote, Above all, Moltke was a religious dreamer who believed in guardian angels, faith healing, and similar nonsense, end quote. Moreover, Moltke was often accused of being a spiritualist. Then there was German General Karl Hauschofer, who commanded a brigade on the Western Front. It was said that he had the uncanny gift of prediction, knowing exactly where and when the enemy would start an artillery barrage. It is claimed that he even knew the exact numbers of casualties and that his predictions always became true. In time, Haschauer befriended, befriended Rudolf Hess, and he would visit a World War I veteran turned aspiring politician by the name of, you guessed it, Adolf Hitler in Landsberg Prison. General Erich Ludendorff, who after the war became an ally of Adolf Hitler, began to publish his tirades against secret societies, especially Freemasonry and the Jesuits after the war. This he did with his second wife, Matilda Ludendorff, who founded with him the Bund für Gottesintiges, which is the Society for the Knowledge of God an obscure theist society that still exists today. 
Matilda was trained in psychiatry and relentlessly attacked the various strands of occultism of her day, arguing that it had led to the development of mental illness in a number of her patients. She also claimed that Moltke had lost the first battle of the Marne because he was under the influence of one Lisbeth Seidler, a devotee of Rudolf Steiner. Nevertheless, she cooperated with a number of leading figures of the post-World War I Volkschessen, such as Rudolf John Gorsbin, Otto Siegfried Ruder, and Karl Marita Maria Willigut, who is named Himmler's Rasputin, and who was amongst others responsible for the design of the infamous Totenkopf ring that only the members of the SS could wear. In the light of this, how probable is it that then on Dutch soil, and we must remember that the Netherlands was neutral in World War I, that some offshoot of an also unidentified German order or group was involved in ritual human sacrifice? Well, even the shadowy group isn't certain. So they throw in a brief overview of a mere two pages mentioning the Golden Dawn, the German Norden, the OTO, and the Thule Gelschaft. The short overview is riddled with errors. They describe, for instance, Eric Ludendorff as one who was steeped deeply in the occult, where actually he was against anything having to do with occultism. In doing so, all the important studies that have appeared over the years on these groups and characters have been bypassed. They settle on an even more unlikely candidate, the group around Stefan Anton Georges, entitled De Cosmica, George, from 1868 to 1933, though, foresaw a sad end of the coming war in 1914, a viewpoint he also reflected in his pessimistic poem, Der Krieg, or The War, that he penned between then and 1916. Also, although National Socialists expressed his influence, interesting Albert Speer's brother Hermann was a member of George's inner circle, Many of the leading members of the German resistance, such as the Stauffenberg brothers, were introduced to George. One of the brothers, Klaus von Stauffenberg, would later become involved in the botched assassination attempt on Hitler on July the 20th of 1944. If there actually is a context for this kind of dangerous alternative reality storytelling, the 1930s would have been much better situated as a backdrop for their wild claims. In 1931, for instance, a Dutch Aero-Germanic society was founded that propagated the study of the works of Austrian Volkische author Guido von Liszt. One of its founding members, a J.R. de Haan, proclaimed during a meeting in 1934, and I quote, Culture is the cultivation of nature, and its architect is the Führer, end quote. Another of its members, Dutch Theophilus, theosophist, and later member of the SS, Foko van Til, even stood at the base of the nudism movement in the Netherlands. He had founded a nudist group modeled after the German Tribund für Aufgesetzte Leben, Brotherhood of Loyalty Club for Ascending Life. By the way, all the German in here, my mother is going to call me and tell me all the words I got wrong, just so you know. Anyways, the Brotherhood or Loyalty Club for Ascending Life of German Richard Ungewitte, a pioneer in nudism in Germany. In 1923, Ungewitte introduced the idea of racial hygiene, and in Van Til's group, only those were allowed to join if they were of Aryan descent. 
The group published a short-lived magazine and had its own premises since 1929. As you can imagine, the neighbors were not amused. In 1941, a Dutch Celtic German study circle named Egersil was active, lecturing on topics like Atlantis and the Spurious Aura Linda book. The book also had enthralled Hermann Wirth, a Dutchman who was appointed first director of Himmler's Hogwarts, the Annerbeth Institute, much to the chagrin of Germany's scientific circles. And indeed, in a pamphlet published in 1940 about the Oralinda book and written by J.F. Overvin, a member of Igestral, he refers here and there to the Frias, which he saw as a pre-Germanic tribe living in a time in which there was no mention of Greek or Roman thoughts. Hmm. But to return to the secrets of the Roundhouse, there's no evidence of such a dark cult in existence in World War I Netherlands. It is just one of those tales extracted out of a muddy soup of supposition, hearsay, and taking great liberty with verifiable history. Perhaps the little-known historical details of the Dutch connections with Arisophy in the 1920s and 30s were garbled beyond recognition into the lurid accounts surrounding the Roundhouse and its World War I killer cult. There is a Dutch forum where opponents and proponents meet regularly in verbal sparring matches. The last development to date is the introduction of the Rennes-le-Chateau mystery to provide some extra flavor and, who knows, some respectability. This is a development that was predicted some time ago when this first became of interest in the mystery of the Roundhouse. And it also serves as a caveat. If there truly are historical grounds for a mystery to exist, over time the mystery becomes smaller in outline as we travel to its epicenter. False mysteries, the so-called modern mythologies, on the contrary become larger as more and more strands are pulled into the fray. We travel not inward, but are pushed outward to end up in a vexing maze where anything goes, as in fact, at the core of this modern myth-mongering, there is ultimately nothing of any significance to behold. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me here today. And I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think of the story today. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And just so you know, my mother will be chastising me with my horrible German. She'll say, why didn't you call me? I would have told you how to pronounce that. But mom, I love you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Auntie Gertie. You know I love you both. But if you do have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you want to tell me off, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, my darlings. Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.